I think you could think if you wanted one word to describe this tragedy, you know, we'd probably come up with a lot of different words, but my word, among a few others that I've got in my head, would be fear. It's fear that has driven over 2.5 million refugees out of their homes into unknown places in unknown lands, separated from their families, from their husbands, little children. It's all about the energy of fear. Now, I was thinking about that this week. I thought, though, you don't have to be in the, the Ukraine to experience the disabilities of fear, right? <laughs> I mean, um, I was thinking about my own life and fear with my... And I went way back, a little weird, but I went way back to when I was a little boy. And my dad would pray with me at night, and he'd walk out and turn out the lights. And then all the clothes I had thrown on my chair suddenly looked like a monster over there. And there were like eyes on my dresser staring at me. And, you know, do I have a witness here? But that, don't, don't leave me up here alone on this, okay? It's like <laughs> and so I flop over and drop my hands. And I, yeah, I don't know what's under my bed. Like bury my head in the pillow like... So afraid and so disabled, and, and I remembered ninth grade where I was a victim of a bully. His name was Ronnie Barlotta. He'd see me in the halls. He'd shove me into lockers. He'd say, if I ever see you on the way home, I'm going to beat the tar out of you. I was just totally taken by fear my whole ninth grade. You know, I was thinking the other day about Ronnie. He was kind of a skinny little runt. <laughs> I'd kind of like to meet him today which is a thought from the dark side, sorry. <laughs> yeah. but, but how that fear totally interrupted, disabled my life as a ninth grader. And I was thinking through others, just this past year where I had a significant bout with fear. Like, fear's a problem. My guess is if we welcomed everybody to come across this platform and give a personal testimony about the fear issues in their lives, we'd be here a really long time because I don't know that any of us are exempt from the disability of fear. Fear disables us personally. It distracts us. It totally occupies our mind, takes us off productive things. Gives us sleepless nights. Why is it that three in the morning? Do any of you have the, is there anybody here that has the rollover at three in the morning deal going? And everything's always worse at night, right? You know, but it's that sleeplessness, the impact of that. It's a, and I just have to say it's not only disabling personally and physically and mentally, but spiritually as well, because in the trauma of life that triggers these fears, we're going like, where is God? Why doesn't God help me? Why doesn't God care about me? And even sometimes when God calls us to obey into difficult territory, which he often does, he asks us to forgive our enemies. Suddenly this fear thing, if I forgive my enemies, I'll be vulnerable. They don't deserve it. I'll be scared about what happens in the future. I might remind you that Peter's betrayal of Christ was driven by the fear factor in his life. So fear's a problem. And I've come all the way from the other side of this town to tell you 
that God is not the author of fear. I mean, let's do like a, a meta-narrative of the history of Scripture. And you start in the Garden of Eden, right? And it's wonderful. I mean, it's the perfect environment. And Adam and Eve love each other without distraction, fully satisfied, and they both love their God, and their God walks with them. It's wonderful. And I have to say, it was fearless. The reason I know it was fearless is because Eve talked to a snake. That's why. (laughs) And then she believed the snake. And as you know, they fell. And sin entered with all the ramifications of sin into that amazing environment. Came shame. Came guilt. Came relational brokenness with each other and with God. And God comes into the garden and he says to Adam, why are you hiding from me? And Adam says, I am hiding because I was afraid. And fear entered. And I have to say, if you continue with the, with the meta-narrative of biblical history, just keep going. Don't stop till you get to Revelation chapter 21, where God through it in 20 puts Satan in the lake of fire forever with all the tools in his hand finally gone. And in my favorite text of scripture, Revelation 21, where he says, there will be no more sorrow, no more death, no more dying. Wipe All those things that trigger fear in our lives will be gone and he will make all things new again. And because of his marvelous grace and his work on the cross in an empty grave, we will be welcomed someday into that eternity where there is no debilitation of fear and live with him forever. But in the meantime, what do we do in this in-between world with this problem called fear? Well, one of the wonderful things about Jesus is he came to redeem us from the consequences of the fall. He came to redeem us from guilt and shame. He came to redeem us from broken relationships. And he came to redeem us from fear. That we somehow could live a life that would be a sneak preview of eternity and be people of confidence and courage in the midst of all the things that trigger fear normally in our lives. He came to redeem us from fear. So if that's the case, then how, do we, how, how does he do that? How does he trigger that redemptive work for fear? Is there anybody in the house that would like not to have to live in the bondage of fear? All right, so let's, let's go to Jesus and find his work. And he does it uh, in our text today that we're going, two different texts that we're going to study today. Jesus in Water World is what I've entitled this message. Uh, Because uh, basically he's going to take his disciples into a very traumatic, fear-triggering reality. And he's going to do that to train them. So I have to remind you that when Jesus is working with his disciples for three years, it's just not a random tour around healing the sick, doing this, doing that. One of the purposes is to actually train the disciples. They will be the ones that will be the stewards of the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so he's, all the time he's training them. And one of the things that would endanger their advance of the kingdom of Christ in, after he leaves 
is the problem of fear. Because they will go face to face with the Roman Empire. They will be threatened with their own martyrdom. Jesus Christ warned them, you're going to be kicked out of, semin- uh, out of synagogues. You're going to be kicked out. You, people will revile you. You will be hated by many. Your family, all those fear factors that would stop them from carrying the kingdom on. And I just have to say, there's something personal there for me. Like, I think it's a tremendous redemptive privilege to be able to be a part of advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ in my world. And yet that fear factor has the potential of choking all that out. So what Jesus does in our text today is actually schedule two events where fear is triggered and then teaches them how to mitigate the fear factor in their lives. And maybe we'll get a clue. Ready? Okay, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Now, those of you who are regular attenders, you know we're studying the book of Mark. And the last two weeks, uh, Rod has been taking us through chapter 4, where Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, the seed, seed sown, the mustard seed, the size, etc. Now the text flips, because he goes from teaching them to experiential learning. It's one, there's a difference here. You can sit in a class and be taught and learn everything, It's a whole other thing to do experiential learning. For instance, if you're studying to be a nurse and all you do is see giving shots on videos and in your textbook, I don't want you giving me a shot. (laughs) I want you to have some experience somewhere along the line. And so what Jesus is now shifting from the classroom to real-life experience with them to deal with them in the problems of fear. All right, so do you have chapter 4? And actually... Our text, Jesus does two of these water things. So we're going to read here in chapter 6 and then go back to Matthew. But as we normally do in honor to the word of God, let's stand. Chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so, what is the word? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I just want to stop here for a second. We're going to deal with this a little bit later, uh, later, but they'll preview that there is something about fear and faith, faith that's antithetical. If you have a lot of fear then maybe you need to work on your faith. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Or if your faith is strong, your fear will be small. So I just want to say that's a setup that Jesus Christ has for what he's going to do. 
and they were filled with great fear. I was going, wait, we'll go from one fear to another fear, you know. But this is a different word here. This is the word, like if you read in Scripture, uh, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's not being afraid of God, like, oh. <laughs> That's a different kind of a fear. It's a fear of standing in awe of him, like, Oh my goodness, what an amazing God I have. It's that awestruckness that's in his presence. And so in doing that, their fear of the sea was transferred to this awesome reality. And they say to each other, wow, the wind and the sea obey his voice. How can this possibly be? All right, so the second event in Water World is in chapter 6. We begin reading in verse 45. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And then evening came. The boat was out on the sea, but he was back alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when they saw him walking on the sea... They thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him, and they were terrified. They were afraid. But immediately he spoke to them. Listen to this. He said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. That is the theme of this, this mitigation of fear. Take heart. It is I. Be not afraid. Say that with me. Take heart. It is I, be not afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Now you're saying, is this the one where Peter jumps out of the boat? It is, but Mark doesn't give us that. So let's go to Matthew, because Matthew fills us in on that important detail in Waterworld as well. So go to Matthew chapter 14. If your legs are getting tired, be not afraid. We're almost done. (laughs) Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before them to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain himself to pray. So you see, this is a parallel event. And when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was by this time a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, that was lame. Immediately... <laughs> Immediately, he said, take heart, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, well, come. So Peter got out of the boat. I would like to talk to Peter, like, whatever possessed you? You know, like, (laughs) nobody else wanted to do that, but good for you. Like, so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. By the way, how many of you think that, was an awesome step of faith. Seriously. But it also reminds us that faith is a very fragile thing. 
and is often threatened by the traumas of our lives. And he began to sink. And said, Lord, save me. Jesus goes, you are always doing stupid things like this, Peter. Like, <laughs> This is what I love about Jesus, right? He's so patient and merciful with our lameness. And it says that Jesus, just think of this. Think of Peter feeling the grip of Jesus as he was sinking. And Jesus immediately reached out, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. May God add his blessing to his word. You may be seated. So just some observation on these two events, and then we'll get into uh, mitigating the fear factor. First of all, I think this is clearly an intentional setup by Jesus. He commands them to get in the boat, and he gets in the boat with them. I don't think this is just a random thing. He goes on a boat ride with them, and it's all of a sudden a storm. I believe this was an intentional setup, a training moment for these disciples. And they obey. So there's a clue. Just because you're living in the Jesus lane and living a life of righteous obedience, it doesn't mean you are exempt from the trauma that may trigger fear. So you say, well, if I just obeyed Jesus, my life would be wonderful. Maybe not. I mean, Jesus obeyed in the garden, obeyed his father. His life wasn't real wonderful after that when he went to the cross. So an obedient life may run into trauma. What I like, it says in the first event, and they took him in the boat with them. Always take Jesus in your boat, please. That's really important. And this is where they work. They work in the sea. So, so Jesus often comes to meet us and to do his training work in us where we live, where in our homes, in our office places, in, in where we recreate, where he, is, he, doesn't, he doesn't do is like really big work in church. He meets you where you are in real life. That's where these traumas often trigger our fear because these were men of the sea. This was their business. They were fishermen. And the other observation was they're really traumatized, not only because they might drown out there. By the way, somebody, I read recently somewhere, I was trying to remember where it was, that drowning is not that big a painful death. You just swallow and your system stop. And I'm going like, are we, I never talked to anybody who drowned. I mean, I how do we, how do we, how do we know that, right? Like, like, but so they're not just going to drown. For them in that day, the, there was just generally accepted belief that the sea was the underworld, the place where demons existed. Remember, Jesus took the, the pigs in the story of the demoniac and put the demons into the sea. It was the, under, it was the spookiest place. You may want to not drown, but you don't want to drown in the underworld. This is trauma, fear-inducing trauma to the max for these people. And it's life-threatening life to them. And from their point of view, Jesus doesn't seem to care. Anybody in the house that says, you know, I've thought that sometime. Doesn't he care? 
Doesn't he know? And they say, why are you sleeping? Don't you care for us? Kind of a pretty normal response. And he gets up. I don't know about you about being woken up from a nap. A really good nap. I mean, this was a good nap, right? The storm was really going pretty hard. And uh, it's kind of like in the middle of the night, Marty hears the noise. Joe, did you hear that noise? No. It was terrible. Get up. Go look around the house. So I'm going to encounter the robber with the gun, right? And with the knife while she continues to sleep nicely in bed. You know, like sacrifice your wife. That has nothing to do with the message. But when I was, when I was preparing it, that crossed my mind. That was, that's a rude wake-up, right? <laughs> so anyway, Jesus gets up. I don't know if he was in a, He gets up. And he meets them in their fear. And he calms the sea. Took the trauma out and then wanted to talk to them about faith. That's an important dynamic, by the way. Better not preach to somebody in trauma until you help them with their trauma. And then they might listen to you when you talk to them about your faith. And they are awestruck. The second water world event, again, is intentional. Obviously, Jesus says, get in the boat, go across the sea to Bethsaida. And another setup, not random. This is intentional. And what I like is Jesus sees them out there from the mountain. And if you've ever been to Israel, you know of those highlands, you can see the Sea of Galilee. And he notices them, and he goes and walks toward them. And he shows up in the midst of their trauma. Is there anybody here that is really thankful that Jesus keeps showing up? Yes, it's a great place for an amen. Because in the midst of their trauma, Jesus shows up. But he shows up in this kind of like additional trauma way because they think it's a ghost. But he shows up. And he says, take heart in this eye. Do not be afraid. And Peter says, if you command me. And he walks on the water. And here's a dynamic. He had his eyes fixed on Jesus, gets out of the boat, and as long as he was trusting in Jesus, everything was okay. When he was distracted by the, re the things that triggered his trauma and his fear, he began to sink. It's a matter of focus. And Jesus reaches out and rescues him. So what do we learn about mitigating the fear factor in our lives. Uh, at least three things from the text. Number one, I think it's important for us to know that we, ought, we need to embrace his presence. I love Hebrews where, it says, where Jesus says, I will, do you want to help me with this? Never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, you don't need to fear what anybody does to you. The presence of Jesus Christ. My dad was a pastor in Hackensack, New Jersey, just about six miles out of New York City. And uh, in New York City, in Harlem of New York City, and back then it was pretty urban, kind of a challenging place, uh, was a church called the Abyssinian Missionary Baptist Church. It was a famous African-American church. Senator Adam Clayton Powell, who was a national figure, was the pastor of the church. My dad had a Sunday night off, and he said, I always wanted to go to that church. Let's go to that church. I remember getting in a car, driving across the George Washington Bridge down to uh, 
into Harlem. We had to park like three or four blocks away. And we got out. And as a little kid, it was scary walking all that way to church. Just my dad. He wasn't big enough. You know, like, you know, I need help here. And we went to the church. And my dad met the, the major, main pastor, wasn't there, met another one of the pastors. And they had a wonderful conversation. And uh, he said, hey, where's, where's your car? My dad said, oh, three blocks down there. He said, I'll send a couple guys to take you back to the car. These guys were big. They were the church bouncers, I think, probably. <laughs> one stood on one side of us, the other on the other side of us. We walked back. Guess what? No fear. Because who was with us? Who was with us? But there's something even more intimate about the presence of Christ. He's not only in your boat. Jesus is in your heart. He dwells within you. Scripture says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there's an intimate thing here going on where in all the trauma of life, Jesus is there inside. He's with me in this. It's, uh, I think it's kind of like uh, he feels my pain. And, you know, Hebrews tells us, doesn't it, that in all points he was tested like as we are. Therefore, we can go to him with unstaggering confidence, knowing that he will help us in our time of need. So this Jesus who dwells in us is with us and feels for us. And you say, well, if that's the case, then why doesn't he do something about it? Like, where are you? Like, the, don't you care about me? It's a matter of timing. Every situation is different, and I really can't read why God, though he is in you, though he feels this, though he wants to exercise grace and mercy in your time of need, I don't know about the timing schedule. I just know this, that he loves you and cares for you, and that timing is very important. Sometimes I wonder if maybe he doesn't want us to get to the end of ourselves so that we know how much we really need him and not ourselves and not our own efforts. But anyway, you just need to know that his presence is in you, this almighty Jesus. So that's number one. The second thing is to embrace his power. What an amazing moment this is. I don't know if any of you have ever been in an angry sea, if you've ever stood on the shore and seen the power of the waves or looked at a movie of a tsunami or whatever, but there's a lot of aqua power going on in the sea that I have no control over. This is amazing, that he could speak and it became still. And they witnessed personally his power on their behalf. I think, that, uh, I think that there's another aspect here. It's not only his power engaged, but it's his authority over the sea. You need to know that, that Jesus Christ's power has authority over everything. That's, by the way, why he cast out demons. He wanted his disciples and followers to see that he has authority over the satanic host. It just wasn't 
let's release this guy from the demon. I think he wanted to do that, but it was a statement about his authority over demoniac forces, sicknesses. He healed people with sicknesses so that he would prove to us that he has the power and authority over sickness and death, Lazarus, that even has a power and authority over death, if you can believe that, and his own empty tomb, that he had the power and the authority over that. Of all of Satan, Satan's victory was the cross. He just killed the Messiah. I'm telling you right now, they probably had a party in hell for three days. They won the victory. You just see Satan on the throne like Jabba the Hutt, like, whoa, we did it. Like, Three days running. And then the head demon comes and whispers in his ear, hey, dude, you got a problem. Because Jesus demonstrated that he has the authority over even death on our behalf. And I just want you to know, there is no trauma in your life that triggers fear that Jesus does not have the authority over and the power over. And you can believe that. He had the authority over the wind and the waves. And another thought on power, he loves to spend it on us. I remember back when I served at Moody Bible Institute in chapel one day, I challenged the students. In fact, I offered them free room and board for a semester. If they could ever show me one time in scripture where Jesus used his power for his own benefit. That's how we use power. The power of our wealth, the power of our position, for our own benefit, you can't find one. He always used his power for the benefit of others. And, and I love the Chronicles verse that says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth that he might show himself strong on their behalf. He loves to unleash the authority of his power in your life. And so we not only embrace his indwelling presence, we embrace the amazing, awesome authority of his power to deal with any situation in our lives. Then thirdly, his peace. He calms the storm, and they are at peace. I guess a little trickier one, because actually, if you embrace his presence and embrace his power, you can have peace even before the storm is, is calmed because you have a sense of confidence in who's managing this whole thing. Um, Marty and I have a very dear friend who for the last five or six years has had a horrible physical ailment that's incurable. He lives in pain every day. It's part of long-term suffering. And he just found out that he's been analyzed with possible cancer. I'm going like, even the NFL has a rule against piling on, right? Like, how does this happen? And I remember when he texted me just two weeks ago and told me that this had happened. He goes the long text on describing all that he's going through, surgery, everything. And then he concludes it like this. I love this. He says, we are confident in God's plan and are at peace in his hands either way. Wow. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. 
So it's the embracing of his presence within you, his power of authority over everything in your life, and the ultimate peace that he wants to give to you. So how do you trigger that? So now I go back to this antithetical thing we talked about earlier, that faith and, and fear are antithetical. You either have a lot of fear, you need to work on your faith. If you have a lot of faith, you're probably going to be able to conquer the fear. So the issue is faith. He says to them, oh, you of little faith. Don't you have faith? And so let's talk about how to implement this kind of faith. So I have two thoughts about faith that I think really are important and helpful here. And I don't know, I know how I listen to messages. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. If you're out, you got to get in right now. This is important. <laughs> Number one is that faith focuses on unseen realities that are true. Let me say that again. Faith focuses on unseen realities that are true. Hebrews chapter 1. Faith is the conviction of things unseen. I talked to you about the presence of Christ. I talked to you about the power of Christ. The peace, those all like aesthetical, but the, it is true. You can't see them. You can't touch them. But I want you to know their truth, true. And faith embraces them. It's, it's that mechanism to embrace the unseen. I go back to Peter. That was his problem. He refocused on stuff he could see, the sources of his trauma, and totally lost track of his vision of Jesus Christ. But it's faith. Faith is that, that choice to say, I am going to be convinced about the unseen things that are true. And I encourage you that in the midst of your trauma, that should drive you to the word of God. That's where you find the things that are absolutely true, that you can embrace you ought to go to prayer. Spend more time in prayer. I find it in my prayer life. I start my prayers and then God starts talking to me. It's kind of, hey, stop. I'm talking to you right now. No, no, I don't say that to him. But, you know, yeah, all of a sudden I begin to hear from the Lord. So I just want to call you to have that kind of faith. Stop looking at the things that are seen that are causing your, your trauma. And you know what they are. I mean, you recite them over and over and over again in your head. You'll, you'll give the list to anybody who will listen to you about all the traumatic stuff in your life that's robbing you of peace and joy. Stop it. Focus on those things that are unseen but absolutely true. That's what faith does. Number two. Faith is a choice, not an emotion. Fear is the realm of emotion. And if your emotions are driving you, you're ready for a train wreck. Faith is not an emotion. Faith is a choice. It is a choice to believe what I know to be true. And it's tough. I don't, want to, I don't want to make it like I've got this little formula that I give you and everybody's going to be fine. It, this is a struggle. Now, look at Peter. Starts out with great faith. And then he starts, this is, but I just want you to know that these two things about faith are the core. It's kind of like um, Hebrews says that we have an anchor for our soul. 
I mean, the storm may be going up, but you got an anchor down there, right? All the, the things that are true and all the things that you know to be true. And it's holding you firm in the midst of all the billows that roll. And I was thinking there may be somebody here this morning who thinks to themselves, self, that was good for the disciples. I mean, that was Jesus and the disciples, you know. How do I know that works for me? So thanks for asking that question. You know, it's like 2,000 years later. Because the scripture is full of the reality that what Jesus was doing with the disciples in terms of his presence, his power, and his peace is a theme all through scripture. And I thought it might be helpful if I could find one of those passages so you wouldn't think, oh, it's all just him and the disciples. And right away came to my mind Psalm 46. Open your Bibles with me. Because these three themes of presence, peace, and power are evident. And then there's a concluding hint about what we're to do. All right, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, in trauma. Therefore, the psalmist says, we will not fear. And then, he, and then he, he scopes like cataclysmic fear kind of things. He says, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its dwelling, we will not fear. So that's the introduction. And then he brings the peace theme in. In the presence of God, there's absolute. So you have all this cataclysmic thing going on with mountains and seas, and then you call the quietness of where God dwells. He says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. That's the peace that is always in the presence of God. And then he talks about the power. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. Listen to this. But he just has to utter his voice, and the earth melts, his power. And then he comes, and then he says, verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. That's his presence. He gave his peace, his power, and his presence. And I love it. it didn't say God is with us. It's the Lord of hosts is with us. How many of you know that God has this amazing army? like bazillions of angels. It's the host of God. You think God's too busy for you? Maybe he is, but he's got a few people they're going to send to help you. You know, like he's got these hosts to come. He's got, and he is with us. So there it is. And then he says, the psalmist says, so this is for all of us. The psalmist says, so cease striving and know that I am God. I think it's interesting what this, uh, actually, your text probably says, um, uh, let's see, forget what it is. Uh, yeah, be still, right, thank you. Be still, I got ahead of myself a little bit here. So I always wonder what it means, be still and know that I am God. I just remember like as a boy in, in church, my mom was always like, tell me to be still. I still have actually her fingerprints in this knee right here. <laughs> like, <laughs> be still, it's like stop wiggling. It's not what it means. The Hebrew means cease striving. 
And it's interesting that even the Hebrew word is, uh, is a metaphor of your, put your hands down to your side. Stop fighting. Again, put, cease striving and know that it's, so here we go back to faith embraces, chooses to believe what we know to be true. I remember, you're all too young for this, but one of my favorite sporting events in all of history is 1980 Lake Placid Olympics U.S. hockey team. All right, you need to know why it was one of my favorite things. It was because uh, our president told us that we were in Malaise. Nice, nice, thanks, cheerleader. That made us feel real good. Interest rates were double-digit interest rates. We have hostages in Iran. A whole bunch of our citizens were hostages in Iran. So we thought we're going to send out the crack troops to rescue them. And across the desert, our helicopters all crashed. And Russia was the big enemy. And it was like, and now we're going to be in the Olympics. So we're depressed already. And our hockey team is going to play the Russian hockey team. And in those days, pros couldn't play, so he had to put amateurs. So we're going to put these little college guys out there against these genetically engineered hockey players from Russia. <laughs> and we just know, here we go again. So it was on a Sunday. I remember coming home from church, turn on the TV, and it was halfway through it, and we were tied. And I couldn't believe it, like, What? I mean, I bought the whole couch, but I only sat on the front third. You know, I'm going like, whoa, I'm saying total anxiety. Like, we might win this, or we might lose, just total, and then we've won. Like, what? Like, amazing. It was so cool that they actually replayed the game on TV that night. So I would watch the whole thing. This time it was a little different. I slid back in the couch, put my feet up. Popped some popcorn, had a Pepsi, and watched the game. No anxiety, no trauma. What made the difference? Thank you. It's what I knew to be true. And know that I am God. I am with you. I am in you. My power has authority over everything in your life, and I will bring you peace. And I thought there are more things on the list that I know to be true, that reduce the anxiety. Like he's the Romans 8.28 God who works all things together for good to those. Like this may be very traumatic now and I may be inside out about everything, but I know that ultimately in, in God's hands, he will work it out for his glory and for my good. And I know that. That helps me endure. That helps me persist. And I know another thing. Raising kids, I don't know, for all you parents in here, you know, it's pretty close to child abuse, isn't it? <laughs> like, like, I'm going to beat the tar out of this kid if he keeps doing that. And so when, when parenting got really rugged for us, Marty and I would just look at each other and say, this too shall pass. And I just want you to know something. Because of Christ's presence and authority over all things in hell, in your life, it will pass, and the day will come where you will be ushered into a fearless eternity of joy with Jesus Christ, and you can count on that. You can know that, and by faith, take it and never let it go.
So that's how faith works. And I welcome you to the privilege of having Jesus in his wonderful presence and power and offer of peace come in and calm the storms in your life. If I go back to my moody days, that in the dining commons, there was this wonderful woman. She's my best buddy. Her name was Eloise, African-American lady. She ran the cash register in the dining commons. I'd, every day I'd talk to her. One day I'd go, hey, Eloise, how are you doing? She said, I got to wake him up. I'm going like, oh, what's that mean? She said, don't you know your Bible? I said, well, yeah, but she said, don't you remember when the disciples had to wake him up? I got to do that today. I got to go wake him up. Maybe you need to wake him up today to flee to him. And back to my little bedroom when I was a little boy and the trauma of those like spooky nights, my parents gave me a little tiny uh, radio and I, after, with my head in a pillow, I'd say, turn it on real soft at night. I was just outside New York City, as I told you, so this was something that went all over the city, and I could just imagine people who were hurting and whatever. It was called Big Joe's Happy Hour. And he would always start the program with this. He would sing this song. Somebody cares about you and worries till the sun comes shining through. Somebody cares if you sleep well at night. If your days go all wrong, or if your days go all right, somebody cares about you and worries till the sun comes shining through. Please believe me, it's so. But in case you didn't know it, somebody cares. And then he would say, have no fear. Big Joe is here. And I can still remember what that meant in my poor little traumatized heart. But I have something far more profound, another voice that you need to hear, and it is this. Take heart. It is I. Be not afraid. Let's pray. Lord, we just ask that um, you will release us from the emotional bondage to fear. May we, by faith, Embrace all that is true, though unseen. And Lord, give us the grace to choose, to cling to that by faith. We just thank you for the reality, though unseen, of your presence within us, of your power to be spent on us, and your peace to grace our lives. So Lord, as we struggle and as we find ourselves sinking, May we feel the, the grip of you on the arm of our lives. May we feel you picking us up, pulling us up out of our sinking fear and putting us in the boat with you. Thank you for the grace that calls us to that joy. In your son's wonderful name we pray. Amen and amen.